As we go forward in worship, we now want to turn our attention to God's Word. So we're going to read uh, from four scripture passages. Our main sermon text this morning is Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, we're just going to read the first seven verses of that. Uh, so Kim will read that for us. Uh, and then Elisa will read for us from Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Uh, Claire will read John 15, 1 to 8. And then Crystal will read for us Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Uh, what we're looking for in this passage is that in Isaiah 5, we see Isaiah telling us that judgment is going to come upon God's people. And these passages from the New Testament that we're going to read reminds us that the, the promise of future judgment is still to come, that God is going to return in judgment. And he will judge according to his character. That is according to what is good and according to what is evil in his sight. And so my hope is that as we read these passages this morning, God will open our hearts that we might truly believe that he is returning to judge the living and the dead and that he will give us hearts that desire to flee from what is evil and to turn to what is good in Jesus Christ. So let me pray now that God would open our eyes so we can understand his word and help me to proclaim his word. And then Kim can come forward and begin reading for us. Heavenly Father, again, we know that In our natural flesh, we are unable to understand spiritual things. We are unable to understand your word. And so, God, open our eyes now to see beautiful things in your word. And God, open my mouth in particular, I pray, to rightfully teach your word. Lord, would you protect me from saying anything that is in error? And would you equip me to rejoice over everything that is good and pleasing in your sight? And as we here listen to your word read and preached, Would your word bring about faith in our hearts that we might rejoice in you all the more? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, or that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you have you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, I have two big burdens for this message this morning from Isaiah chapter 5. First, I want to show you how God's standards do not change and how even as God expected holiness of his people in Israel, so he expects holiness of us in Jesus Christ. So again, the first burden is to see that God's standards don't change, that his standards for us are the same as his standards for Israel. And then second, I want to show you how Jesus is better than Israel. Because whereas Israel had no power to produce holiness in its people, Jesus has the power to produce holiness in his people. So the second point is simply that Jesus is better because he is able to produce holiness in us. So first, let's see how God's standards do not change. 
In chapter 5 of Isaiah, we are in the last chapter now of the introduction to Isaiah's book. Isaiah chapters 1 to 5 uh, kind of give us an overview of Isaiah's ministry. They show us the lay of the land in Judah and Jerusalem in the time of Isaiah. We saw in chapter 1 the depth of Israel's sin and the devastating effect that it was having upon Israel. And then in chapters 2 to 4, Isaiah turned his focus more particularly to Judah and Jerusalem. And we saw how they were lifted up in human pride and how God was going to bring them low. Yet even at the end of both of these sections, Isaiah announced that there was a profound hope for his people. He said that even though his people were so rebellious and were so wicked, that he was going to make sure that there is a remnant that would be kept by his grace and that that remnant would experience incredible wonders of God's grace and his love. Well, Isaiah chapter 5 is a little different. Isaiah is still communicating to Judah and Jerusalem in the depth of their sin, but at the end, he does not give us a message of hope. Indeed, the very last line of Isaiah chapter 5 says, And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Isaiah is saying to Judah that the lights are about to go out on you. That all the sun of God's grace and God's favor that you have enjoyed is going away. And you are about to come under God's judgment. He's saying that I have been patient for long enough and now it is time for you to go. Now, it's certainly tempting for us to think of this message as strictly an Old Testament message. Indeed, one way that I think sometimes we can mischaracterize the Old Testament versus the New Testament is that the Old Testament is a message of God's judgment, and the New Testament is a message of God's love. While certainly the New Testament is a glorious message of God's love, it is simply not true that the New Testament does not include God's judgment. We just read three passages from the New Testament that speak of God's judgment that is coming. And so in that way, I think even as Isaiah was speaking to the people of Judah and Jerusalem about his coming judgment because of their sin, we ourselves are in the same place today that God's judgment is coming upon the world because of the world's sin. And so we ourselves must learn to fear and tremble at this coming of God in judgment. Acts 1 verses 9 to 11, right after Jesus rose from the dead and spent some time with his disciples, it says that when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, that is Jesus, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go up into heaven. And so that is the time that we are living in now, beloved, the time between Jesus' first coming when he came in mercy and grace and his second coming when he will come in judgment. These words of 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10 tell us of this coming day of judgment. It says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. But when Jesus returns, he is returning in judgment. The day is coming when Jesus will descend from heaven and will give to every person according to what that person deserves. Now, I am sure that we would all affirm this as Christians, but perhaps we don't consider often enough how even for Christians, we will be weighed according to what we deserve. We will be weighed according to what we have done in the body, what we have done in our lifetimes. We'll come back to the passage of John 15 again, but just to read through it one more time. John 15, 1 through 6, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Clearly, the branches that do not bear fruit, that do not show any fruit of the Spirit in their life, no goodness or gentleness or love or grace, they will be taken away and thrown into the fire. Or consider 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 to 12. It says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. These are Old Testament believers and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This judgment that God promised in the Old Testament and brought upon his people in the Old Testament was written down for our instruction so that we who stand can take heed lest we fall. This judgment that Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 5 was written down for our instruction so that we who stand can take heed lest we fall. We cannot put Christ to the test, beloved. We must assess our lives soberly. Let me just give you one more passage. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And then verse 10, 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So how is it that you confirm your calling and election? How is it that you know I really am in Christ? Well, you put on virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. The fruit in your life is the evidence of your calling and election. If you have no fruit in your life, if there is no good produce in you, then you are not in Christ. Because being in Christ yields this fruit of steadfastness and hope and love. And so we indeed must take heed lest we fall. We must examine ourselves not with rose-colored glasses, but according to the perfect mirror of God's word. Beloved, as, as humans, it is our natural tendency to think highly of ourselves. Our sinful tendency is to pride. It is to thinking of ourselves with rose-colored glasses. We look at our lives and we want to emphasize all the good things that we see. Indeed, all of us do have some good things that we see in our lives, and we should rejoice in that and give thanks to God for those good things that we see. But nevertheless, if we only look for the good things in our lives and we don't soberly examine ourselves exactly according to God's word, then we are not taking heed. We are not being careful to examine the fruit in our lives. And even more than the tendency that we have to pride that makes ourselves think of ourselves more highly than we should, we live in a culture that proclaims that self-esteem is key for living the good life. I was just listening to a podcast last night, a seemingly popular podcast, where the host said that in his mind, the key to a good life was to feel good about yourself, was a positive self-image. This is the message of the culture around us. But beloved, I am scripture, I'm urging you this morning to do the opposite. Don't only think of your best qualities. Don't only try to think good of yourself. Examine yourself according to God's word and say, do I really measure up to this command that God has for me? Am I really obeying God in this way? Because, beloved, eternity is at stake when God comes in judgment. He will judge according to his word, not according to the morals of our culture, not according to how good we compare to our neighbor on our left or our neighbor on our right or how good we compare to everybody else in our church. He will compare us according to what he has commanded in his word. In the words of Paul in Romans 12 verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We think with sober judgment, not with rose-colored glasses. And so whenever you're reading God's word, whenever you're listening to God's word, when we gather as a people, when you're listening to preaching right now, ask yourself, do I measure up exactly to what God has said? Don't just look to my example. Don't just look to others around you. Look to God's word and look to Jesus Christ, most of all, who was the perfect image of God, the perfect representation of God's law. The question is, do we measure up to him, beloved? The greatest commandments that he gave us were to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Beloved, do you measure up to that? Again, don't, don't just look to me. Don't look to what you know. Look to how Christ lived. Look, look to his love. Do you measure up to that? Are you bearing fruit in your life according to what Christ has shown to us? Jesus himself says at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's standard for us, beloved. And again, the first point for us this morning is that God's standards do not change. The law that was written down for the Israelites and the law that Jesus himself spoke to us is the law that we will be judged according to. And maybe all of us in this room will fall short. Maybe all of us in this generation will fall short, but God's standards do not change. Now, let me do be clear that I am not saying that anyone who falls short of perfection will go to hell. Scripture makes very clear that no one will achieve perfection in this life. That will have to wait until we get new and glorified bodies. And yet the fact remains that God expects real and genuine fruit in our lives. And that fruit won't be the exact same for each person. God knows that we do have different starting points. Some of us come from terrible backgrounds. Maybe with parents who hardly cared for us, suffering abuse and neglect, suffering against addiction. And for that person, fruit may simply be the power to resist addiction that held them in bondage for years. And others of us maybe had a better start to life. And for us, fruit isn't going to mean simply avoiding addiction. It is going to mean growing up in love and caring for others. And even those who do have backgrounds of addiction and abuse, God is able to redeem them and make them new and cause them to be mighty in the Lord. But the point is that we all must have fruit in our lives if we want to consider ourselves in Christ Jesus and safe from the judgment that is to come. Now again, for Judah, in Isaiah's day, this was terrible news. Because Isaiah was making clear to them that they were wicked people. We saw that all over chapters 1 to 4. And here in chapter 5, Isaiah keeps adding on to their list of sins. And I'm not going to take the time to go through them in detail this morning, but let me just read through a few of them so that you can get a feel for Isaiah's language. The pattern that Isaiah uses in this chapter is he says, Woe to you for some indictment. And then he says, Therefore God is coming. So listen for the woes and the therefores. Isaiah 5, 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. He's talking about those who are accumulating wealth for themselves at the expense of others. Isaiah 5, 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. 14, therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite. Sheol is the place of the dead. Sheol has enlarged its appetite and it opened its mouth beyond measure. Isaiah 5, 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. 
Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. And then verse 25, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Beloved, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Almighty God. These woes and these therefores remind us that we must take our sin seriously and flee from it because God's standards are not changing, beloved. If we do not turn from our sin, then we ourselves risk destruction on the day of Christ's return. Even if we plea with God that we trusted in Jesus and maybe we prayed a sinner's prayer, if our lives do not bear fruit, we will be condemned. Now I'm sure you are wondering at this moment, where is the good news? (laughs) And how does saying this differ at all from mere legalism? Well, as I said at the opening, there is no hope given in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is simply the promise of judgment. Yet I actually do think that in this chapter, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we can discover words of hope because Jesus himself picked up on Isaiah chapter 5 and transformed it into his own metaphor in John chapter 15. And so now I want to turn to this hope that we have in Jesus Christ who can produce good fruit in us. But first, let's take one moment to look at Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Again, this is the metaphor that we read at the very beginning of our time of Scripture reading and that Jesus himself takes up and transforms. So Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, just as a note there, uh, wild grapes, the translation of that word is uncertain. Uh, but wild grapes, the translation that the ESV uses, it just implies um, something, a fruit that is sour, that is not good, that you can't do anything with. Uh, another translation that I really liked called it stink fruit, to yield stink fruit or rotten fruit. Um, So there's different ways you can understand this, but basically what God is saying is that I planted this vineyard to be a beautiful vineyard. He says, choice vines. He cultivated it. He picked the perfect spot for it. It would get just the right amount of sunlight. He did everything that he could, and yet, what does it yield? Sour or wild grapes. It yields stink fruit. And then verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge 
and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So again, God is comparing Israel to his vineyard. He's comparing Judah to his vineyard. And he says plainly in verse 4, What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I had not done in it? God cared for this people. He chose them out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. He set his love upon Abraham. When they went down into slavery, he redeemed them from slavery. He brought them up. He gave them his good law so that they would know the way that they ought to live. He had given them every type of external grace he could. He had given them the temple and the sacrifices. He had given them priestly garments and incense. He had given them all kind of sensory overload that he could give them to show them, I am holy and therefore you too must be holy. But God says all of this was of no use. It could not change your hearts. And so they stood condemned, as Isaiah says. And so let's turn now to the same metaphor that Jesus uses in John chapter 15. Again, John chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Pause there for just a moment. Notice Jesus says, I am the true vine. And so this vineyard that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 5, it was just a picture of the vineyard that was to come. And we see, especially in Isaiah 5, that it was a sorry and terrible picture compared to what God was sending in the age to come, to what God was sending in Jesus Christ, who is the true vine, who is the true vineyard. John 15, 2 Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice God is still tending this vineyard. Already you were clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So notice again two things about this metaphor that Jesus carries over. The first thing I've already said is that Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. He is the one that this picture from the Old Testament ultimately points to. 
And so our question is, does this vineyard, does this vine have the same problem that the vine of Israel had? Do they have the problem that they cannot bear fruit? That regardless of what God does to tend this vine, there is no fruit and it yields only stink fruit. Well, we see Jesus' response to that in this passage as well. Jesus promises that anyone connected to him will bear fruit. Again, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Beloved, if you abide in Jesus Christ, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your sins may have been, wherever you may be, however old, however young, if you abide in Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. You do not have to fear the judgment on the last day because Christ will produce in you what is good and pleasing in his sight. Christ even makes plain that we do not bear fruit of our own efforts. Again, it's not as if you trust in Jesus and then you have to work really hard to produce fruit. No, you trust in Jesus and then you go on trusting, you go on abiding. And Jesus himself will naturally produce the fruit through you. And so briefly in closing, I want to just consider this question, what does it mean to abide in Christ so that we can bear fruit? I'm just going to stick to the context of this passage in John 15 itself. First, you'll notice that in John 15, 9, Christ says, Abide in my love, in particular. Abide in my love. How is it that we abide in Christ's love? Well, where do we see his love most clearly? We see it in his death upon the cross for us. If you want to know the love of God, if you want to know the love of Christ for you, look nowhere other than the cross of Christ where he was crucified for you that you may live. And so the call to abide in my love is, I believe, a call to remind ourselves daily, to stake our hopes daily upon the cross of Jesus Christ to remind ourselves that he truly does love us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ himself has done by giving himself upon that cross. So we remember the gospel every day, and as soon as we start to doubt God's love, we look to the cross again, and we put our faith there and not in our feelings. And so we abide in Christ's love. The second thing we see that's in some ways the same thing is in John 15, verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That idea of Christ's joy in us, that sounds a lot like abiding in Christ, does it not? Like being in him. And how is it that Christ's joy is in us? It is by these things that he has spoken to us. It is by his word that we have joy, fullness of joy in ourselves. You will be more prone to forget the cross and to forget the glorious message of the gospel if you do not regularly turn to God's word. And even if you turn to God's word, but you don't see how Christ is the fulfillment, the epicenter of his word. 
And so by coming to Christ's word and how seeing Christ in all of scripture, seeing his love on every page and believing those words, we are filled with joy and we abide in him. And then third and last in John 15 verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, it seems clear in the context of John 15 that what we should be asking for more than anything else is fruit in our lives. This is what John 15 is about, the vine that bears fruit. And so he's saying, ask for whatever you wish. I think a fair paraphrase would be to say, ask for whatever fruit you wish, and it will be done for you. So Jesus is telling us here to ask God for fruit in our lives. And let me especially encourage you to to ask God in faith, to ask him believing prayers. It won't do any good to just throw up good wishes into the sky saying, Oh, God, please take this sin away from me, or please help me to do this act of love, or please help me to change in this way, if in our minds all along there is just skepticism and doubt. Like, God cannot really produce fruit in me. God cannot really change me. If we pray in that way, our prayers will almost certainly be ineffective. And so take stock of the hope that is given to us in John 15, especially in verse 4, where Christ says that anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. Believe that promise and then pray in that belief. Say, God, your word says that if I abide in you, then I will bear much fruit. I see in my life that I'm being unfruitful in many different ways. Would you please take this unfruitfulness away from me and would you produce in me what is pleasing in your sight? And so, beloved, as we abide in Christ, as we learn to remind ourselves daily of his love, as we learn to daily take in his word and daily go to him in believing prayers, God will change you and he will produce fruit in your life. Such that when the judgment comes, when Christ returns and he gives to everyone according to what they deserve, he will be able to look at our lives and he will be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Again, not because of our own willpower and because of our own efforts, but because we have abided in Christ and Christ has borne good fruit through us. Beloved, we must not continue in our sins. God's standards are the same yesterday and today and forever. God has planted a new vine in Jesus Christ. Not like the old vine that didn't bear any fruit. And so run to Christ this morning, I plead with you, and be amazed by what he will do in you. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we know that we are yet a wicked people. We are yet a people who fall so short 
of your glory and of your righteousness. And so, God, we plead once again this morning for the blood of Christ to cover us from all sin. And as we plead that blood, Lord, we remember your great love for us. And as we remember that love, we are made bold to go forth in love for others and in love for you. And so, God, would you equip us in all these ways that we might indeed be pleasing in your sight. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.